Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is miracles with some help from C.S. Lewis. Or is it help? So let's put a little uh, disclaimer here up front. C.S. Lewis is a very beloved and with very good reason and is the reason many people get started on theology. But it is also true that once people get very far into theology, they begin to find some, hmm objections to some of the ways C.S. Lewis does things. And um, he would actually agree with that assessment. He insisted time and again he was not a trained theologian. He was simply trying to make sense of the faith as he had received it and was not trying to innovate or depart from the Christian faith. So anyway, um, I've been wanting for a while to talk about miracles as a topos theologically, and so I thought it might be interesting to launch our discussion with C.S. Lewis's book, by that name, on miracles, and um, kind of interact with that because that's where I think a lot of people get started in their thinking about miracles, and then we will move on from there. Dad, are you ready? I know you're, you weren't someone who started in life on C.S. Lewis. No, in fact, the first C.S. Lewis I ever read was when your mother, when we were newlyweds, asked me to read, I think, the Narnia Chronicles. What is that? Seven. The Chronicles of Narnia. Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and then I read the Space Trilogy. And, you know, I moderately enjoyed the fiction. Um, I'm not much of a, as you know, I'm, I'm so benighted. I'm such a curmudgeon such a neanderthal i just i just don't like fiction that much <laughs> no you really really don't <laughs> no uh it's a it's i'm sure it's a character deficit in me but anyway when we were newlyweds to please my bride i read c.s lewis's fiction and then i tried to read some of his more serious books didn't he write a book called four loves or something like that yeah, I read that. Well, I'll give it this. That book is better than Anders Negren's Agape and Eros, which makes my makes me tear my hair out. So, you know, rel- relative flaws. Yeah, but, the, you know, it's just uh, run, uh, Platonism run amok in The Four Loves. So I, you know, anyway, let's, <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a curmudgeon in this episode and throw a bucket of cold water on everything C.S. Lewis says. So I'm going to try my best to, to be charitable. Sarah, and I'm going to let you take the audience through the book, Miracles. I'll interject with thoughts from time to time. Okay, well, all right. Everyone has heard that um, humble disclaimer, so we'll proceed under those grounds. But, well, actually, I mean, I I think it is worth the trouble of interacting with Lewis and disagreeing with him heartily if necessary, because I actually find more and more that miracles really is a topic that does need to be talked about devotionally and in church life. Um, And I think a lot of people come to faith because of what they understand to be a miracle, or they come looking for miracles, or they're trying to make sense of of the absence of miracles. And so Mm -hmm. even though it's a a kind of outlier religious experience, I think it's probably closer to the the surface of of people's religious concerns than maybe ordinary working theologians spend a lot of time with. I mean, I I don't find that um, miracles greatly preoccupy the concerns of your your everyday working theologians. So I think just the fact that Lewis is writing this for people maybe makes us pay more attention to what people are trying to sort out, the theological questions they're asking. But I, I think it really opens up huge questions theologically anyway. I think that's exactly right. I think even even in the Bible, 
miracles are a, a religious phenomenon of, of the popular culture of, you know, I, I don't mean this in a put-down way, but of lowbrow culture um, uh, in, in which they're taken as signs and, and uh, proofs and guidance and things like that. And that, that kind of interest in miracles is evident in Scripture. Um, uh, but, of course, Scripture uh, has, a very, in some ways, a very ambivalent attitude towards miracles, which we can get to at the end. But let's, uh, let's go ahead with uh, your hypothesis that popular religion uh, has an interest in miracles. Right. Okay. Well, so where C.S. Lewis comes at this with is that because popular religion is interested in miracles, therefore popular despisers of popular religion go after miracles and try to puncture their very possibility. So actually, the lion's share of this book is a kind of philosophical throat clearing where Lewis argues that a purely enclosed system of nature, as opposed to creation, you know, self-sufficient nature, um, and the corresponding philosophy of naturalism is self-refuting. And um, his basic argument comes down to, if that's the case, then reason isn't actually reason. You have no basis for saying absolutely anything about anything. A supernatural view of things is necessary to make sense of the natural. Well, now, let me clear my throat here. I wonder, I wonder if C.S. Lewis ever actually read carefully Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza is one of the rationalists who wrote a naturalistic metaphysics. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just, on the surface of things, I think that to claim that naturalism is self-refuting, uh, you would have to uh, take full uh, full attention to a to a philosophical modern philosophical figure like Spinoza, and uh, I don't see that in in the book uh, Lewis did anything like that. No, I, I don't believe so. So. Uh, we, let's not spend too much time on this, but I mean, this is how I often hear the popular apologetics, which is that you simply can't account for something like human reason and consciousness, much like, you know, or any number of things, you know, the anthropic principle of, you know, planet Earth being hospitable to life and life like us, or that the brain is the most complex object in the entire universe, and all these things kind of suggesting that an enclosed system of nature is not, d does not account for itself. And that is the basis for Lu for Luther. <laughs> can tell who we usually talk about here. That's the basis for Lewis arguing that you have to admit of a supernatural force, which for him, of course, is is God. And therefore, if God is there, then God has the right to interject things into the apparently closed system of nature. And let me just register. Then, the naturalist would actually reply. The cosmos just is, we begin with that, lucky us through long processes of the algorithmic process of evolution, the uh, natural law in the scientific sense has been encoded into our brains, and the miracle that the human mind can dis discover the laws of nature is simply a, 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 a recognition of the of the. Uh, of our uh, of the nature that is within us. 
So do you accept that argument? I mean, do, do you do you think Spinoza or whoever has a compelling enough naturalistic argument that you can't refute it on its own grounds? Yes, I would. I don't. I don't think it's refuted on its own grounds. No, I don't. I think there have to be other reasons for for uh, a Christian theological. Um, 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 what's I don't want to say rejection, but I want to say something like a Christian theological reframing of the uh, of the of naturalism. Okay, well, that sounds like a good topic for another time, <laughs> but let's yes. let's proceed onward from here. Well, anyway, it's just worth noting that that is actually the basis for Lewis's argument, which is that naturalism is self-refuting. There is something outside the system that is God, and then God can, as now shifts from being merely the prime mover as creator, can as creator uh, interfere with or muck about with or interject things into the system that he has already created. And you can't rule that out of court as as impermissible. Right. So there's, you know, basically then you have this kind of framework, nature and supernature. And uh, um, if, if you admit uh, that nature implies a supernatural creator, then you also have to admit that the supernatural creator can occasionally intervene in ways that appear to human creatures as, quote, miraculous, end quote, right? Right. But then, I mean, for me, part of the problem is then the whole question about miracles is finally like a philosophical testimony to the way things are ontologically or metaphysically. They're not actually really about the miracles themselves. And Lewis will go on to talk about miracles specifically, but it seems like the whole argument has already been arrested at the philosophical de debate between the naturalist scientist type and the, the you know, pious believer or Platonist type. Well, the, the philosophical supernaturalist, yeah. You know, let me just comment here, Sarah. I brought up Spinoza. I'm sure Lewis never read Spinoza. But I think all... Uh, British Christians, C.S. Lewis among them, were traumatized by the arguments of David Hume against miracles. And Hume just defined miracle as a violation of natural law. And so if the, the trouble with apologetics of the kind Lewis is doing, in my view, is that you take the opponent all too seriously and let you let the opponent frame the entire discussion. So if, by definition, according to Hume, a miracle is a violation of natural law, the apologetic theologian says, yes, and the supernatural creator has the right to violate his own law. That's exactly the argument. <laughs> yes, and what that does is turn God into some kind of arbitrary God which would be exactly the objection that a naturalist like Spinoza would have. But, okay, I've, I've, I, you know, this is a very ang Anglo-Saxon conversation that <laughs> Lewis is having with the British tradition. Well, yes, one can understandably be traumatized by Hume's attack on miracles. But I think it's interesting that even that then, then wraps around to the problem of the pious, which is God is arbitrary. So, you know, like um, a young father dies of 
of a rare cancer when his wife is eight months pregnant. And he's a church member and the entire church has been praying for his miraculous recovery. And he doesn't. And he dies. Well, how arbitrary of the supernatural God who apparently can interfere whenever he wants. Like, why did he not interfere there? So it ends up becoming the same objection, but just from the, the opposite side of, of, uh, of faith commitments. But it's still the same problem. Right. And now, I'm Sarah, I'm registering these objections as we go along, but I, I want to assure the listeners, I hope by the time we get to the end of this podcast, we can outline a far more excellent way. Yes, we will. We will. <laughs> like I said, this is Miracles with some help from C.S. Lewis, but we'll, we'll move it along. Okay. So actually, the, the one section of this book that I found most um, intriguing as an interpretation uh, is, well, okay. So interestingly for Lewis, the whole thing he's leading to in this book is the miracles of Jesus. And he talks first about Jesus himself as the grand miracle. And for him, he states that the incarnation itself is the grand miracle, which I think, again, stereotypically is the Anglican focus. Though if you actually read the text, he spends as much time actually talking about Jesus' resurrection as the central thing. I don't think he can quite, he, I don't think he thought it through very carefully or made up his mind which which has the right to interpret the other. But then he gets into detail in the miracles that Jesus himself performs, and it turns out that this is actually what he is most interested in defending. He's actually, as we'll see shortly, not interested in defending miracles that any of us might experience, but giving some interpretive framework to the specific miracles of the incarnate God, who is Jesus Christ, at a certain place in time and at a linchpin point of, of history of massive upheaval in the, the fabric of the uh, natural world because of God's advent there. And so th the way he he kind of uh, does a taxonomy of miracles and says there are Jesus performs miracles of the old creation and miracles of the new creation. So by old creation, he means things that uh, unstick stuck nature or restore nature back to where it is supposed to be or, or somehow lie in continuity with nature itself. So for instance, he talks about fertility miracles, which for him does not mean childbearing. There are, after John the Baptist, no childbearing miracles in the New Testament, but like the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. And he talks about how, you know, seasonally, you know, you plant a, a single, you know, grain of wheat and it turns into a whole stock full of wheat. And and, you know, uh, from tiny fish eggs, you get a whole, you know, um, school of fish swimming abundantly through the seas and the rivers and so forth. So what Jesus is doing is kind of concentrating locally and temporally what is happening at a wider scale all the time in creation. So again, it's, it's in continuity with what nature is doing anyway. He says the same thing about the healing miracles is Jesus is restoring to the body its own ability to heal, which, you know, again, we know in a scientific sense that healing is actually the body's repair on itself, that, you know, medicines or or interventions can help that, but healing is is done from within by the body's own immune process. He talks about the destruction of the fig tree as being, well, nature is always destroying itself, so even Jesus' destruction of the fig tree is that. And finally, in this category of old creation is dominion over the inorganic, so like walking on water is, is subduing the organic world and making it, it serve a human purpose, which maybe is all of what uh, human ingenuity is doing all the time. Yeah, 
and I guess I'm somewhat sympathetic with this line of argument that um, the, um, the, the miracles uh, of Jesus have to do with the redemption and liberation of the creation, which has, on account of the dominion of sin and death, been subjected to vanity and frustration. And so the miracles of Jesus are, just as you said, a concentrated, a focused um, divine uh, liberation of natural processes from the systems of exploitation and frustration, uh, which 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 uh, um, uh, harm them, injure them, make them dysfunctional, and so forth. So I think that that's a pretty good take. And of course, I just wanted to back up. You began that laundry list of the miracles of Jesus um, by saying it's the person of Jesus Christ, which is of course the central miracle. And I think that's right. Uh, and I think it's a thought that has kind of been eclipsed or lost in a lot of contemporary religion, uh, Christian religion, and even in theology. There's no wonder or amazement uh, or contemplation uh, of the um, incarnate Son of God, the miraculous person who Jesus Christ, who is this that even wind and wave obey him? Uh, that kind of awe and wonder uh, at his person. So yes, I, to the to this extent, I think Lewis has done a good job. One thing I like about this particularly is that I find in practice there is such a segregation between God as creator and God as redeemer and God as uh, sanctifier and instigator of new life. You know the classically three persons of, of the Trinity. And I think what what is um, helpful about Lewis's interpretation of Jesus' miracles specifically is that it shows very much that the Redeemer is redeeming the creation that the Creator created. And it's not some other entirely different kind of thing going on or that you, you know, you kick away the creation to ascend into some, you know, a pl platonic escape from creation. Or even, uh, I was st struck by this, Lewis observes how many miracles don't happen in the Bible <laughs> compared to classic mythology. So, um, like, uh, listeners may recall the charming play of Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, where Bottom is turned into an ass or his head is turned into the head of an ass and Titania, the queen of the fairies, falls in love with him. And that's drawn from Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is a you know classic Greek text that records at length all these bizarre, well, metamorphoses of one thing into something else entirely. And what Lewis points out is, is how, in a sense, mundane biblical miracles are. So God may turn into man, but man does not turn into ass in, in right. the Bible story. And I never thought about that before, because uh, if you look, you know, from uh, longing now to see something miraculous and then look at the Bible, you know, you tend to see, well, actually, there aren't that many miracles in the Bible overall, but, you know, they, you know, a wonderful healing or even, you know, raising up of a dead person or, uh, you know, walking on the water, multiplying the loaves and the fishes, it never even occurred to me all the wacky things that could happen that don't. So I thought that was helpful. And, and again, I think it, it shores up his point that what biblical miracles are demonstrating is the fidelity of the creator to the creation and that what the redeemer of Jesus Christ is doing is restoring a fallen creation, healing it and, and making it new, not, you know, bringing in just 
you know, random new possibilities like man turning into S. Right. Though there is, I just would mention as an aside, there is some pretty funky stuff going on in the Elisha cycle in Second Kings. But let that pass. <laughs> all right. All right. Yes. I mean, this Lewis is standing in mainstream Christian uh, theological tradition here. Of course, there's the famous uh, slogan of Thomas Aquinas, that grace does not destroy nature, but per uh, perfects it. And, uh, and Luther echoes that thought, especially in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, where uh, Luther uh, asserts that Christ is not a foe of nature. Indeed, he has come to redeem nature, which has been spoiled by its true foe, the devil. <laughs> you know, so... Luther is thinking that nature is exactly what gets liberated. I would just caution conceptually that we shouldn't casually equate nature with creation. Mm -hmm. I think they're not the same concepts. And, and there is a tendency in the Western tradition to equate creation with nature. And then and the, that reflects the Platonic and Aristotelian philosophical background where nature uh, is a category uh, of thought. And so you're thinking that, well, the creation, that's simply what the philosophers call nature, or the philosophers call nature what the theologians call creation. I'm not sure that you can talk about creation without immediately talking about God the Creator, and indeed primarily talking about God the Creator, and uh, the world as the implication of God the Creator. Whereas nature suggests both something self-sustaining and something that human beings aren't. <laughs> you know, even when I hear the words without m much more reflection, when I hear the word creation, I know I'm a part of it. When I hear the word nature, I'm not. I mean, I, then I could correct myself and say, well, of course, I'm, a, I'm an animal who lives on planet Earth and has evolved in all its processes and so forth. But nature is always somehow other than culture or human yeah, and these, these dualisms are part of the problem, but let's go on. Right. Okay, and then, so then Lewis's other category is the miracles of the new creation. So this is what is brought beyond the possibilities or, or capacities inherent even in the creation, something new that is done. And so for Lewis, again, Jesus' incarnation is the primary one, but also uh, his transfiguration is a, a sign, a pointer forward to eschatological redemption. And then, of course, the resurrection is is the, uh, the big sign of something that is definitely not not inherent in nature or creation, which is um, moving beyond death or everlasting life. And so for him, that's the, I think the balance is important because then it's not just, you know, setting things back right again. It isn't only a, a protological or setting right orientation, but this eschatological orientation toward a, some, some kind of future in which more things obtain than currently obtain within the natural or created sphere. Yeah, well, and of course, above all, that would be what, as I, I mentioned earlier, the miracle, which is the person of Jesus Christ, uh, such that he, as a, this person, can be the object of Christian devotion and worship, as we already see in the New Testament, right? Uh, and of course, 
if that's not a miracle, it's idolatry. I mean, you can put it that way. If the person of Jesus Christ is not, quote, miraculous, end quote, then the Christian devotion to him is idolatrous. Uh, and uh, we should, uh, you know, there are some kinds of theologians today who have invented the category of Christofascism. Christofascism. <laughs> yes, they have. Dorte Zola was one who popularized this idea 30 or 40 years ago. And this is exactly what they're talking about, that Christian devotion to Jesus um, is an idolatrous uh, self-promotion, which is authoritarian and uh, imperialistic, and uh, in the modern idiom, fascist. And the truth be told, Sarah, there are some peripheral white nationalist groups in the United States that, um, you know, kind of manifest this kind of Christo-fascism in which their Jesus, Solomon's head of Christ, has become the icon of their uh, nationalist ideology. Well, but I mean, there's a big difference between what you can do with a religion and there's no religion that cannot be corrupted by corrupt people and what is... Um, genuinely implied and meant by that religion's own, you know, texts or sources or practices. So I think... Which is why we do theology. Yes, well, that's yeah, exactly, right, right. That's why we do theology. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, well, um, I, I'm, I'm about ready to leave this section, but I just want to read you a quote, and I'd like you to comment on it, because I think this really gets to the heart of Lewis's, um, maybe, as you said, accepting Hume's terms of debate, but trying to reframe it as the continuity between creator and redeemer. So Lewis puts it like this, if events ever come from beyond nature altogether, she, meaning nature, will no more will be no more incommoded by them. Be sure she, nature, will rush to the point where she is invaded, as the defensive forces rush to a cut in our finger, and then hasten to accommodate the newcomer. The moment it enters nature's realm, it obeys all her laws. Miraculous wine will intoxicate. Miraculous conception will lead to pregnancy. Inspired books will suffer all the ordinary processes of textual corruption. Miraculous bread will be digested. The divine art of miracle is not an art of suspending the pattern to which events conform, but of feeding new events into that pattern. Yeah, I think that's Lewis at his best. That that's that's very smart, and uh, it's a little bit uh, better than the kind of gross um, supernaturalism that I was criticizing earlier in the podcast. And you know what it makes me think of, Sarah, is John Polkinghorne, the great British uh, theologian uh, who has championed the contemporary dialogue of faith and science. Polkinghorne is a physicist. He describes himself as a bottoms-up thinker. And uh, he very much uh, uh, thinks of divine causality in the cosmos. Now, th this is very bold. Uh, in Britain, in, in Humean Britain, in which <laughs> miracles are a violation of natural law. Uh, Polkinghorne has made the argument, uh, and I think it is a sophisticated version of what Lewis is saying in the quotation you just made, 
that God, God uh, intervenes causally in the cosmos by the um, um, uh, by the um, injection of new information. And new information, of course, systemically affects the whole of the cosmos. And I think that's a, and you know, he even, and I, I picked this up in a, in a article I wrote on Christian prayer for the Encyclopedia of Christian Prayer, um, uh, building on Luther, but leading on to Polkinghorne. It's also how Polkinghorne sees the effectiveness of intercessory prayer. That, uh, that we are invited to participate in this c- c- communication exchange between creator and creature. Uh, Robert Jensen once put it this way, that in prayer, we are invited to advise the Lord of the universe on how to run the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the idea here is that prayer by divine permission and invitation and encouragement, is an input of information to God. And God, in turn, in responding to prayer, inputs information back into the entire cosmic system. And that has its ripple effects throughout the whole system. I think that's a very intriguing way to think about uh, miracles, quote-unquote, in our scientific age. Well, that is a great lead into the last point from Lewis that I'd like to discuss because this one really startled me. I mean, I read this book years ago, but I didn't remember this at all. So in an appendix, not even in the, the main book, he takes up the topic of what he calls special providences, which I think is what people popularly mean by miracles. So when people faith, people of faith today ask about miracles, they actually don't, as far as I can tell, really have a problem with Jesus performing miracles in his day and age. What they're really wondering about is, could I see or experience a miracle right now? And Lewis calls that a special providence and basically says, no. And this is what's so bizarre about it to me. He takes a kind of... um a view of God, God's view of time as being complete and God's pattern weaving of the entire history of the cosmos as being complete because of God's, you know, foresight and grand providential intention. And so for God to interrupt an already existing pattern or unfolding of events just to accommodate a special need that arises, you know, like, um, you know, gravity works regardless. So if somebody, you know, falls off of a tall building, God is not going to interrupt gravity to save them, obviously, right? But for Lewis, this extends to all miraculous things. And then he puts in this weird caveat that says, what God is also foreseeing is your prayers or your lack of prayers. So those are already taken into account in determining whether or not the the so-called special providence will or will not happen. I found this to be so utterly perplexing at the end of this book. So I'm just wondering what you make of it, especially in, in light of what you just said about Polkinghorn, which has a much more, um, f- like, I don't know, like a feedback loop idea of God's grand providence over the whole history of the cosmos. Right, yeah. And so for Polkinghorn, the uh, divine creativity, the divine art of the miracle for Polkinghorn is God's infinite capacity to respond to creatures uh, and innovate in the unfolding of the creation 
according to his eternal purposes of, as I would put it, of the beloved community. Uh, and uh, um, Polkinghorne, or, or rather C.S. Lewis, and what you're saying now, sounds much more like he's a pupil of St. Augustine. And here there, there is a difference between Polkinghorne and the Augustinian tradition. Augustine did have the idea that God sees, God is Alpha and Omega, and God in one eternal act of cognition intuits, creatively intuits, the whole shebang from, you know, the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago to the heat death of the universe 100 billion years in the future, and everything that happens in between. It's all there in one grand vision, including, Sarah, the conversation that you and I are having right now. It's been scripted from the start. And if you and I had trouble getting the internet to, to work properly to record this session, and we joked and said, we need a miracle to record this, that too was a kind of prayer that the Lord heard in eternity and willed to occur so that this podcast could unfold. When in fact, all we needed was a change of earphones, but point taken. <laughs> Point taken. I mean that you know that is that's Augustine, and C.S. Lewis is a, is an August like like so many um, British theologians. The tradition of Christian Platonism is is particularly strong in the Church of England um, for various reasons. So okay, we can maybe talk about this Augustinian view some other time. But just briefly, it's always struck me as like one of those thoughts you can have, but if you let yourself keep thinking with it, it's just going to tie you in knots. It's sort of like how everybody sort of naively discovers solipsism and suddenly thinks, maybe I'm the only really existing thing there is. Maybe everything around me is a figment of my imagination or a show or a play. And how would you ever disprove it? And you, you can't disprove it. So you just have to say, no, I'm just not going to go down that route. And I, somehow, like, I understand what Augustine is getting at and what he's trying to protect with it, but it has always struck me that that view of God seeing everything, so everything is somehow finished and fixed, it's something you can think, but it doesn't, it doesn't shed any light in any meaningful way for human reason. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I've been involved in controversy about this with the there's among your generation. There's a whole movement um, of that's rebelling against the Trinitarian renewal of the 20th century, and the revisions of the doctrine of divine simplicity. That's another a word for Augustine's view. Um, God is s simply God, without any uh, inner movement or change, uh, and as the perfect being. God uh, once and for all uh, intuits, creatively intuits, an entire creation in one eternal act. And so there is no uh, innovation or movement within it. Uh, and this, of course, I find very difficult to integrate with the, t the basic testimony of the gospel and its witnesses in Scripture. That God yeah. is not only the author of the story, but that God writes himself into the story. And in a complex way, both by the incarnate word uh, and his presence, uh, risen presence in word and sacrament, and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
not only in the ministry of, of Christ, but through Christ on the ministry uh, of his Christ's body on the earth. So I, I just find that, that view very difficult. Uh, um, I think what proponents of it would say is that if you involve God in mutability and change, uh, if you put God into the creation, you reduce God to an idol, one being alongside other beings, uh, and that's, uh, I was talking earlier about, you know, the inordinate uh, Christian uh, devotion to Jesus as a potentially idolatrous in that regard. And you uh, you turn God into a being alongside other beings like Jupiter or Zeus or Dagon or, you know, pick your pick your deity. But then, okay, but then isn't the whole point of this theological movement to control what other people can do theologically? See, this is, this is what I have a problem with these kind of theologies that run amok because they're trying to solve problems of sinful people thinking by coming up with another way of thinking. And so, okay, so sure, you can definitely do that with the God of the gospel or of Israel and reduce him to another being in the world. But isn't it up to God to be the one to resist that and overcome and draw people out of the idolatrous worship of him to a true worship of him. I just don't think you can fix this thing by fixing how people think by coming up with another thinking thing that's supposed to fix it. <laughs> well, I think that's right. And I think that's why I've argued that ideas like immutability or simplicity should not become metaphysical principles, but they should be rules for theological discourse, like the first, second, and third commandments. You know, if you if you say we must think and speak of God as categorically the creator of all that is not God, and that is stipulated in the first, second, and third commandments, the first table of the law, then we can affirm that God is faithful to his purposes and in that sense unchanging. And then we can further say, because God is faithful to his purposes, God creatively reacts and innovates in his history with his creatures, it seems to me. And that, that way you have the virtue of both positions, that God is immutably faithful to his purpose of goodness, blessing, and salvation, and just so, God is creatively innovative and involved in history with in, a, in history with His creatures. Okay, well, I think that sets us up beautifully for me to ask you the big question now, having cleared the way with C.S. Lewis, which is, what is a miracle? What do we mean when we say miracle? Because clearly, you said if we start with the violation of nature, we end up in endless problems. But what do we actually mean when we say miracle? You know, I think it would be would have been good here if, if we had prepared a word study and, and you looked at the various Hebrew and Greek vocabulary words that are kind of lumped together under the category of miracle. Uh, and I'm not even sure that miracle is a lot. It's a Latin word. And what exactly is it translating in the Greek or the Hebrew of the Bible? I think what we would see is that the um, in these biblical languages, we're talking about things like uh, phenomena that are extraordinary, out of the ordinary, wonderful, amazing, astonishing, wonders. Wonders. Mm. 
Yeah. That's the wonders. German word, wunder. Wonder, wonder, from which English gets wonder, is, is the word for miracle. Wonderful right. actually means miraculous in wunderbar German, right? Wunderbar, yeah, sure. So I think that would be one step, would be to actually look at the biblical vocabulary. But I, I'm, you know, Sarah, I think that when you do theology, the first question you have to say to Scripture is not, is it true? But uh, what is the rhetoric? What is the sense? Uh, what is this literature trying to say? It's only when you've determined genre that you can actually finally get to what is in fact any kind of factual or ontological claim. And I think when you come with a preconceived idea of miracle, which in the modern Anglo-Saxon culture is Hume's violation of natural law, then you're forced into a sterile argument about whether biblical, quote, miracles, end quote, are true or not. And I think that's just entirely misleading. Um, uh, now, just just think, think, listen to me here for a second. If we, um, if we look at the miracles of the Exodus, uh, or of the harem warfare in the book of Joshua. What is the point of the miracles? The point of the miracles is that the Lord fights for Israel, not Israel fighting for the Lord. So you have a, a revelation of who God is and what God is up to, the God of militant covenant love, who is usurping the usurpers of the earth, in order to promise the land to the meek and the um, uh, outcasts and the uh, refugee slaves and nomads. If you look at the stories, the next great bundle of miracle stories would be in First and Second Kings, the Elijah and Elisha cycles. And here you see miracles that are demonstrating that it is the Lord and not the Baals. Who, uh, who is the giver of rain and the savior from famine and uh, the lord of nature uh, and fertility. So here the function of miracles is to say that the Lord is not only good for politics, the Lord <laughs> is also good for ecology. <laughs> and then if you, you know, you, then uh, yeah, I could go on, you know, I could make this point by running through a number of other biblical illustrations. But to me, the error that a, a book like C.S. Lewis's Miracles makes is that it, 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 it takes an abstract idea of miracles. Uh, it doesn't critically encounter the, the genealogy of the concept and what kind of assumptions are being brought into the discussions with it. And then it tries to use this category to assess uh, the meaning and truth of biblical, quote, miracles, end quote. I think good theological procedure, Sarah, should be exactly the other way around. What is the function of this literature in the scriptures as it is, a as it is actually presented and is there for us to, uh, to receive and understand and make use of? And I think I can just boil that down to a, a, a simple proposition the miracles of Scripture 
are revelations of who God is and what is God's will, which invite believers to participate in the work and will of God. Yeah, I think that that's fundamentally right, that the the purpose of the miracle is not the thing itself, but it's testimony in, you know, primarily in the Old Testament to the Lord God of Israel, and then in the New Testament to Jesus as being the the uh, incarnate representative person of, the, you know, the presence, the Shekinah of the Lord God of Israel um, I- interacting with other people directly. And I think that actually is really important also for devotional purposes. And, and here's why recently somebody reached out to me um, saying that she was involved in kind of a discussion group for women who are infertile um, or, you know, they um, they and their husbands can't conceive children and are, you know, grieving and struggling with that. And so in the process of their, you know, prayer and scripture study, they made the discovery that John the Baptist is the last miraculous gift of a child to infertile parents. And it's nowhere again, in the New Testaments. And they were kind of devastated by this. And they're like, am I, am I not, do I not have any hope of a child now? Am I not even allowed to pray for it or long for it? Uh, You know, what, why doesn't Jesus care about this? Jesus performs all kinds of miracles, but not that one. And, you know, and it was both kind of a sense of betrayal, but also the sense like, well, I'm I'm not allowed to want this anymore. And, um, and it kind of went to my heart, you know, uh, obviously, because I'm an adoptive parent because of infertility. And um, I, but what was so heartbreaking for me about it is that it was starting, the starting point was really about what I desire and will God provide it for me. And of course, that's a natural human thing. And longing for a child is a, a normal, good, blessed thing. I don't, don't have any criticism of that. But unless you theologically start with miracles as being signs of who God is and what God is doing in the world, then you are going to end up with this kind of impossible grief that God doesn't care about your problems. And in my interpretation of what's going on in the New Testament, it is exactly the reset the human community, the beloved community, as you call it, around the church, which is gathered around Christ such that genealogical lines and generations become outposts of the church rather than being the center of human community. And that's why it's actually quite important for the New Testament not to promulgate bloodlines, but to actually put, you know, Jews and Greeks and barbarians and Scythians together right. in a, a new community, a new beloved community around the church. That is why it's not there. It's not because, you know, after Jesus, God doesn't care about the tears of infertile couples <laughs> anymore. But you have to come to the miracle with that or look to scripture that way in order not to have your heart broken and then have some tools from there to deal with your actual normal problems of, you know, stuck creation or, you know, nature not functioning the way it ought to function or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's as simple to go back to the, what we mentioned earlier, it's as simple as the rule that when we speak about God, we're dealing with the creator of all that is not God. And so this is a matter of some uh, awesome holiness, mystery, divine otherness, God's ways are not our ways. God's understanding is not our understanding. There is a holy distance, uh, and the miracles of that God uh, works come out of that holy darkness as beams of light indicating a path forward for us. But for us 
to genuinely apprehend that and appropriate that in faith, the rule is seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Which, by the way, the other things are the simple elementary needs for food, clothing, and shelter. So the first commandment has to govern our understanding of, of the good, the blessings, the good things that God will give uh, to those who ask, ask for them. And I think you're right that if we naively assume that prayer and miracles are about our cajoling God into doing our will, uh, it's exactly the opposite. The good and gracious God who has a will and purpose of his own invites us to, in the second place, pray for our daily bread and for mutual forgiveness. That's what we really need on our earthly way, daily bread. And so, like in Luther's explanation of the petition for daily bread, what does it include? It includes everything, including health and happiness and earthly peace and all these other wonderful things that we ask for. Uh, but if, if, we, if we try to use God for our purposes, we're going to get not only disappointed, we're going to get rebuked. Right. Well, but I, I think it is really important to say for people's faith that it, you can just asking for a good thing that God has indicated through through his scripture and creation is a good thing is not in itself problematic. Of course, it, it can be asked wrongly, but it, there isn't anything wrong with asking for your food. And there isn't anything wrong with asking for worthy work or a spouse if you're single or children if you are a couple longing for them. Yeah, but it, there is something wrong in asking for... Um as it were, an extraordinary or special favor um, that would violate um, the regularities of nature. Uh, that would be a kind of expression of hubris, wouldn't it? I mean, I, can, I don't want to die anytime soon. And I can, can, I, can I start praying that I be spared death and expect that? No, <laughs> I, I, sh I have to reckon with my finitude. I have to reckon with my mortality. Uh, and I have to reckon with that in faith. You know, I, I right now I'm on the fifth anniversary of the stroke I had. Uh, I've lived with the aftermath of a stroke uh, for five years. And that's, for me, like Paul's thorn in the flesh. Uh, uh, I ask that it be removed, and uh, it hasn't, the fallout from it hasn't totally been removed. I'd have to, I've had to live with that thorn in my shoulder pain all these years, right? But I think the, the Pauline answer, my grace is sufficient. Divine power is made perfect in human weakness. That has to be the spirituality with which we pray and then interpret God's answers to our prayers. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that we can't talk about miracles without talking about prayer as well and how the two are wound up in each other. And what you're saying there indicates for me that the problem with miracles, I don't, I mean, maybe for a, a fiercely naturalistic, scientistic kind of mind, just the fact of the, the extraordinary is offensive. But I think for people of faith, the problem is not miracles. The problem is absence of miracles when they would demonstrably be good and timely and better than the devastating 
reality that in fact unfolds. And so I think that brings us back to the the problem of if if God this is an, another pro- case where because you can think it it creates a problem for you. If God is all powerful and all good, right? Then why does he let the young husband die of rare cancer when his wife is 8 months pregnant when demonstrably it would be better for all parties if he lived? Right. And uh, the only answer to that question is the answer that will occur on the last day in the resurrection of the dead. No theologian can answer that question. Not even uh, on the basis uh, of, you know, we see in the light of grace, which is light uh, over against the darkness of the light of nature. I mean, here, Luther's three lights here, I think, are very helpful. In the light of nature uh, alone, Luther says at the end of his treatise on the captive will, that on the light of nature alone, we would be tempted to, to despair and blasphemy. We would be tempted to say that God either does not rule the world or that God rules it in a tyrannical way. We would be tempted, uh, and that's, I think, a lot behind a lot of the naturalistic atheism. Uh, that that uh, that C.S. Lewis is responding to, descending from David Hume. The light of grace, in that is the, the 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 gift of Christ, shows us that in fact God cares for us. Uh, that was the always the great debate: Do the gods care for us? In the light of nature, Cicero said we cannot be certain that the gods care for us. The gods care for the gods, and they don't care for us. So it seems that was. Cicero, the pagan Roman Cicero's great answer to the question of the light of nature. Uh, And uh, then the Christians came along and said, what's so wonderful about the miraculous person of Christ, the revelation of the Father's heart, is that here we have a certain basis for trust in God's care for us. Nevertheless, that trust is trust, it's faith, not sight. And bad things happen to good people, and believers suffer trial and testing. And they hang on, they persevere in faith through adversity, because they have a hope. And that's how Luther concludes with the light of glory. There is a resurrection, and all that is wrong here will be righted there, and all that has been unjust will be will be punished and things like that and so forth. So to wrap up then, can we, are we allowed in faith to identify events in our own lives or in those of people we know as miracles? And do we have to set some kind of ground rules about what can count? Like, um, does it have to be completely unaccountable in any naturalistic way to really be a miracle at one extreme? Or at another, should we or could we make miracle almost synonymous with the wonderful fact of creation itself so that every sunrise is a miracle and every new baby is a miracle and every meal on the table is a miracle? Like those those to me both seem like um, possible accounts of miracle at two at two opposite poles and then everything in between. So Lewis rules out really the concept of the special providence. What do you think? You know, um, 
that section of Lewis reminded me of something, some things Luther said in the Genesis commentaries, uh, namely that if we just paid attention uh, to the wonders of the natural world that are in front of our face, uh, you know, that occur daily, but we're just so used to them, we don't even think of them as wonders but the wonder of the sun rising and, and setting on a regular cycle, the wonder of the constellations rotating around the sky through the nighttime skies, the wonder of a grain of wheat producing, you know, um, uh, uh, falling into the ground, dying and producing new, new life and so forth. Luther said if, if, if we just opened our eyes to, to the miracles in nature, we would see the presence of God all around us. I think that's I think that's really right. It's one of the reasons why I've become a farmer <laughs> in my entire <laughs> retirement. You know, I just I think so much of our urban life has become so uh, artificial. Our environment is entirely human, and we're isolated from the natural world. <clears throat> and this is really a spiritual impoverishment. Uh, uh, for a lot of people. Anyway, so I, I think of that. And then the other thing from the Genesis commentary, uh, Luther was commenting on how the divine voice speaks directly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and tells them what to do and so forth. And Luther says something like, that would totally give me the willies. I, I, would, be, <laughs> I would be totally freaked out if a voice started talking to me and saying it was the Lord and telling me what to do. I'm so glad the patriarchs did that on behalf of us and that those wonders took place way back then and that they're recorded in Scripture for our benefit and that I don't have to experience a divine <laughs> audition. <laughs> I, I'm just curious because in that you, you definitely fall more on the side of everything is a miracle. But as you said earlier, if you look at the scriptural things that we categorize altogether as miracles, they are the astonishing thing out of the ordinary. And so that's where, but to ask if it has to be unaccountable any other way, I feel like is falling back into Hume's trap of violation of nature as the definition of miracle. Well, yes, absolutely. I, I do think that their the redemption and fulfillment are redemption and fulfillment of the creation, and I think that's a theological uh, 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 dogma that that has to be observed very strictly, and that means that like I agree with Lewis here that miracles are primarily unexpected, wonderful. Um, uh, uh, liberations of nature from its frustration under the powers of sin and death so that nature can uh, go on, so that life can find a way, those kinds of ideas. I like that very much. But, you know, I wanted to say one more thing about miracles in the Bible. You and I are both fans of the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is all about the miracle-working Jesus. Now, what's that all about? What is that all about? Are these supposed to be proofs that Jesus is someone special? Uh, towards the middle of the gospel, I think at the beginning of the eighth chapter, the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign. And the miracle-working Jesus, who's been doing all these signs for the previous seven <laughs> chapters, says, you're not going to get a sign. Forget it. Why? Now, why are miracles not forbidden to be 
treated as proofs of who Jesus is. Why? Why Why does the Gospel of Mark, which does such a bang-up job presenting the wonder-working Jesus, have Jesus then reject the quest for a sign in the sense of a, a proof of his special status? I think that's because the, the Bible as a whole and the Gospel of Mark in particular have a very ambivalent attitude towards um, signs, uh, divine signs as proofs of something. In chapter 13, the uh, Jesus warns of false prophets, false messiahs, who will do wonders to deceive even the elect, were that possible. So, you know, in a way, the wonders, the signs, the miracles don't prove anything. And their interpretation is subject to other considerations. Uh, and I think that in that light, when you look back at the miracles Jesus does in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, they're just what I said. They're revelations of who God is and what God's purposes are. And they're militant. They're acts rolling back the oppression of the strong man who has imprisoned God's creatures in a prison house and the whole binds them there. And Jesus, with his spirit-endowed miracle-working, has broken into that strong man's house. He's bound him up, and he's setting his prisoners free. That's what miracles are. Miracles are acts of power against the um, uh, predations of the demonic foe of Jesus in that first half of the Gospel of Mark. They're acts of war, just like Exodus and the book of Joshua. When and where God pleases and not at our insistence or demands. Yeah, I think that's right. I think miracles do not prove anything to anyone who is determined not to receive or believe them, which is what the whole story of John 9 about the man born blind is all about. And for those who already believe, then even the simplest thing, like the sun rising in the morning, is itself miraculous because it is a disclosure of, of God's power and glory and graciousness. And the believers also suffer the disappointment of their petitions not being answered. And that's the whole, all the psalms of lament, all the psalms of grievance and complaint, and the sorrows that are expressed and poured out to the Lord uh, for those uh, sore uh, trials and testings through which uh, we must pass. But that, too, is a confirmation uh, to Christ. Or it, it works that way. And maybe, Sarah, that's the real, genuine miracle that we should always be pointing to. That imperfect vessels that we are, flawed human beings, failed human beings, human beings who have really injured others, that uh, nevertheless uh, we are accepted and embraced and step by gradual, painful step, being healed, being given new insight into the persistence of sin in the life of the redeemed, but in a merciful way that enables that forward progress uh, to the future that is promised to us. Beautifully put.
Amen. All right, then. Next time on the show, Farmer Paul will be talking all about the land. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.